0: Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful presence. We thank you for the wonderful revelation of Jesus that you've given to each one of us. I thank you he is all we need. Father, I thank you because we can have a personal relationship with him. It's not just hearsay. It's not just what we've read, but it's the reality of his presence and the comfort of his presence. I thank you, Father, there is no believer that need ever be alone again because your Son is manifest among us by your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for his faithfulness. We thank you for his love and for his gentleness. We thank you for all that he is. Oh, hallelujah. Father, words cannot express what we feel about your beloved Son. Father, we know that we have something of the heart of God within us. God the Father within us because of the love that we feel for him. Thank you, Father, you have given us the privileged position of being members of the body of Christ. Father, therefore, we count one another precious, even as we count him precious. Father, I pray tonight he may be glorified. Pray tonight, Father, his faithfulness may be seen so clearly. Father, that we should know more about him, more of him, And Father, that he should have more of us to control, more of us to take for his glory. Oh, Father, if only we had eternity, if only we had eternity just to spend talking about Jesus, it's not enough. And yet, Father, we have got eternity and we thank you so much, Lord. Praise your wonderful name. Father, guide us tonight. We need the anointing. Father, we need the anointing of your Spirit upon us. Father, we come to you and we ask you for the anointing of your Holy Spirit. Father, we want this to be the anointed word of God. Hallelujah, which is life and which is food to all our beings. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. We have uh, so far done four tapes now on judgment. Three on grace before judgment. And, of course, uh, we could have spent many, many more on the subject of grace before judgment. One on the judgment of Satan, and tonight I give you the first of two on the judgment of the Lord Jesus. The cross stands as the hub of everything we believe. On the horizon of the world, the cross stands clear for all to see. The cross is the unmistakable fact that is revealed to every single person on this earth by the Holy Spirit. And tonight we have the wonderful privilege of being able to talk about the Lord and to see him as he was on this earth, to see him as he was judged. Now the Bible is clear about the judgment of Jesus. First of all, the specific judgment of Jesus began from the time that he was taken by the soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane and it went right through until that glorious event occurred when he, on the cross, said, it is finished. And what he meant was he had borne our sins, that he had taken the sins of the whole world, and that from that time forth there was no other substitute for sin on the earth. It lasted the whole period through. But I can see it in two distinct sets, actually. The Bible is also clear Because it actually puts the judgment of Jesus to the account of eight separate people or groups of people. Eight of them. So we're going to uh, actually list them before we begin. Let us turn first of all to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and verse 26. Acts chapter 4 and verse 26, where you get four people actually named as responsible for the judgment of the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 4 and beginning verse, well, beginning verse 23, I think. Beginning verse 23, to put it into context. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And Christ means the anointed one. They stood against the anointed one. Now, verse 27. For of a truth, of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, will gather together. Now, there are four. Notice what it says. Herod, first of all, he was uh, the supposed king of Israel at the time. Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor. With the Gentiles, that's the fourth one. And with the people of Israel. Now, there are the four groups. Two individuals and two groups of people. And between Herod and Pontius Pilate, they represent all of the laws of the land of Israel at the particular time. You remember the Jews had actually been uh, conquered by the Romans. And the Romans had put up a governor over them, who was Pontius Pilate. Uh, Then all the Gentiles were responsible and the people of Israel were gathered together. Now that includes every person in this room, oddly enough, because no matter who you blame the judgment of Jesus for, it was you that judged Jesus. It was your sins that actually put him on the cross, your sins. So, are you a Jew or are you a Gentile? Well, you're listed right here, and it doesn't really matter. This covers us all. Now, there are four major groups. I'll say them again. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and Israel. Now, some people think only Israel was responsible for the death of Jesus. It's not true. The Gentiles were responsible also. But I said eight. Where are the other four coming up? Well, the fifth one won't surprise you. Satan himself was responsible for the judgment of the Lord Jesus. We get that in that glorious passage, uh, Genesis 3.15, the first statement of the gospel in the Bible. And you remember there it says, Thou shalt crush, or bruise the word is, thou shalt crush his head, he shall crush thy heel and there is no question about it that Satan actually was instrumental in, as uh, part of the judgment of Jesus. The extent to which he was, we're not quite sure. Uh, undoubtedly he was there as well as the chief priests and the religious people stirring up the crowd against Jesus that they should cry crucify him. Undoubtedly he was there. Undoubtedly he was behind all of the terrible torture that was inflicted on Jesus. We're going to see some of it tonight. And I think it's going to break our hearts to see what the Lord was subjected to. Satan, I believe, was behind most of it. Well, that's five. But I said eight. Who are the other three? This is the glory of what we're in. Because the other three are these God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and you may find this odd, God the Son were involved in the judgement of Jesus. This week, I said I could see it in two distinct sets, I'm going to deal with the first five. Next week, we're going to see how God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit judged Jesus on the cross. And they found him guilty, by the way, they found him guilty. Tonight, however, we're going to see the first five. Alright, so that's Herod Pontius Pilate, The Gentiles, the Jews, and Satan. All of those five involved. The difference between next week and this week is that next week is correct, correct judgment. This week is illegal, false, it's a complete mockery of judgment. And yet the Lord was exposed to judgment, which was totally wrong. And he took it all without opening his mouth. And by the way, the judgment still goes on, because there are people today who are judging the Lord and judging him very falsely. And he's taking it all, every single bit. Force, because Jesus, no matter what they said about him, was completely and utterly perfect in everything that he did. He was born without an old sin nature, and though he was tempted, he never committed any personal sin whatsoever. Now, let's actually state that before we begin, shall we? The Lord Jesus was impeccable. That means he did not sin. And when he hung upon the cross, it was the fact that he was without blemish and without spot that meant that he could take your sins upon himself. Let's see a few scriptures uh, on that. First of all, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. What a wonderful verse this is. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. What great comfort that is for me. Then <laughs> don't know about you. He was tempted, he was tested in every way that you could be tested. In fact, he was tested and tempted in ways that you could never be tested in, yet without sin. Praise his wonderful name. He was absolutely sinless, and on the cross, he was himself sinless. The next one, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18 and 19. 18 and 19. And this is talking to believers, and I trust everyone in this room knows the truth of this passage. Verse 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold. How I love that. Gold and silver, two of the things <laughs> that are the least corruptible in the world today. But he says, you weren't, corrupti- you weren't actually redeemed by those corruptible things, silver and Gold. From the vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. But verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb. Without blemish. And without spot. Absolutely perfect on the cross. Uh, Another one. uh, 1 John chapter 3. And verse 5. 1 John 3, 5. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him is no sin and that means today there is no sin in Christ hallelujah actually there is one verse that comes to me which perhaps is the most glorious about this and it's found in the gospel of luke luke chapter 23 luke chapter 23 And verse 39, I think we'll begin at. Verse 39. And one of the malefactors, which was hanged, railed on him. Now, this is the cross. And he was hanged, as you know, on the cross between two thieves. Railed at him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying... Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same judgment or condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. Christ on the cross had done nothing to deserve to be there. But he was there. He was there on the cross, suffering for our sins. He was absolutely perfect. Now with that in view, everything else we're going to see tonight is a complete illegality. Because he was judged by men on this earth. Now, because he was perfect, the fact that any man or any angelic being could stand against him in judgment is just a complete farce. It's a hollow phony of anything that we call justice. And the tragedy was that for almost a day, Christ was subjected to the most tragic travesty of justice that the world has seen. From the time that he was arrested, he was subjected to six trials. Not just one trial, there were six distinct trials. Now, for me to go through them would take longer than we've got tonight. It's a good Bible study yourselves to find out all six. But what I'm going to do tonight is this, I'm going to dip into two of them to see just how illegal the judgment on Jesus really was. I'm going to first of all define why they were illegal. The Jewish law system was extremely fine. It was fair in every aspect. But they forgot it very conveniently when it came to Jesus. Why were these trials so illegal? Why were they so awful? Well, there are six major reasons why. Okay, let's go through them. Number one, it's worth getting these down I think. Number one, the major trial was held at night. Now that was a completely illegal act as far as the Jews were concerned. Absolutely and completely illegal. No trial was allowed at night. It had to be held in daylight hours. Why, by the way, was Jesus tried at night then? Well, you see, these religious people, they had to keep the Feast of the Passover the next day. And they had to make sure that they had clean hands. They wanted all the judgment done. They wanted it all finished. So that they could take the feast of the Passover with absolutely clean hands. The tragedy is that the Passover was given to represent Christ dying for our sins. And here were these people putting him on the cross. Number two. Number two. The law stated clearly that... You were not to pass judgment and sentence on the same day that the evidence was given. So that in other words, as indeed our courts, the evidence is given one particular day and then the next day the verdict's given and the sentence should be passed. That was the rule. That was the rule as far as the the Jewish laws, laws were concerned. And when we come to Jesus, what happened? Most interesting most interesting, it wasn't even that actually they were going to present the evidence and then they were going to pass the judgment. They'd already decided what the verdict was. Not only that, as we're going to see, they'd already decided what the sentence was going to be. Their problem then was to find the crime. Not like Gilbert and Sullivan to make the punishment fit the crime, it was to make the crime fit the punishment in this case. That is illegal. And by the way, doesn't this show the wickedness of man? Actually, the Bible defines every single unbeliever as being an enemy of God. Every single unbeliever is an enemy. Usually, however, uh, it's hidden, it's latent within a person. Yet on the cross, and the, the events leading up to the cross, when the very heart of God had been plucked out of his breast and shown bursting with love to the world, that was the time that the heart of man was shown bursting with hatred on the scene and here are these people they decided what they were going to do with Jesus already already decided it, and then they had to try and find some convenient excuse for passing the sentence tragedy and you know Jesus didn't open his mouth he knew it was all going on and he didn't say a word number three the court was biased the court was biased Terribly, terribly biased. Because in this court, first of all, the judges who should have been unbiased and should have been totally impartial, they they were the ones who were actually firing the prosecution questions at Jesus. The one who was going to pass the judgment was the one who was prosecuting. Well, it wouldn't, even in Britain, that wouldn't be put up with. Not for one moment. And not only that, the judges actually spent their time bribing people to give false evidence. The people who were going to actually pass the judgement on Jesus were bribing, giving out money gifts for anyone to come in to give any evidence at all. Terrible. Number four, Jesus was allowed absolutely no defence lawyer. None whatsoever. No one at all supported Jesus. And this is a trial that we're talking about. This is a judgment that we're talking about. And this is true of all six. The nearest we come to Jesus ever having a defense was Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate didn't give Jesus a defense because he liked Jesus. He hated the Jews. And the history of Pontius Pilate is absolutely marked with incidents where he deliberately gets the Jews riled up. He knew exactly where to go. He knew exactly when to stop as well. And he never quite got them into riot, but boy, he came near to it. And all he wanted, he wanted the Jews put down, that's all. Pontius Pilate was the nearest Jesus came to a defence lawyer. Number five. (coughs) The witnesses were all false witnesses against Jesus. And that's illegal. I think we better actually have a look at the (coughs) scripture that gives us that. Deuteronomy chapter 19... Deuteronomy 19, and they obeyed the first part, and they conveniently forgot the second part. All right, and beginning verse 15, Deuteronomy 19, beginning verse 15, and here was the law concerning trials. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he hath sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the no matter be established. If only they'd ignored this particular scripture, they would have been fine. But they didn't. They liked to get two witnesses to prove that Jesus was a sinner. They didn't know what crime he'd committed, but they were waiting for the witnesses to actually come up with the crime. But notice what it says if it goes on. Verse 16. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is, shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness, and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. So if a man comes along and perjures himself to try and get, say, the death penalty on a man in the dock, He was to be put to death himself. Oh, they didn't—they didn't really obey that, did they? Why not? Because they had actually paid the false witnesses, and as soon as they started questioning them, they found that actually the witnesses' testimonies didn't agree. Let's have a look. Um, Mark chapter fourteen, I think, gives a beautiful picture of what I'm talking about. Mark chapter (coughs) fourteen. And I think we'll go through a little bit of this. Yes, and beginning verse 55. Beginning verse 55. All right. And the chief priests and all the council, who, by the way, are the judges in this case, sought for witnesses against Jesus. They were acting as prosecutors to put him to death and found none. There was no one that they could find to say anything evil about Jesus. I actually imagined that as they went through the streets and they said, would you be a witness in the case of Jesus versus the crown? And I imagined lots and lots of people saying, yes, I will. I was lame. Now I walk. I'll be a witness. Oh, you're no good. Go away. Don't want you. Shut up. I was blind. Now I can see. Jesus did that for me. I was deaf. I can hear everything you say to me. The Lord Jesus I'll stand up for him any time. Go away, the high priest said. Go away, we don't want you. I was dead. Now I live. Oh, they couldn't find any witnesses against Jesus at all. So what did they do? They tried collecting a few false ones. But what they had to do, they had to bring the witnesses in and question them. as soon as they came in and started being questioned, it just turned into a mockery and a farce. Because their testimonies didn't agree. And they quickly had to usher, that's enough, thank you, goodbye, next one. And bring them in. And Jesus stood with his full regality, not taking part in any of it. He knew it was a mockery. But he was loving those people as they were doing it. Can you imagine that? He was standing (coughs) there and with eyes of love, gazing at the high priests. Gazing at all the people in the Sanhedrin and loving them and wanting them to love him. And I think perhaps the greatest heartache was that they wouldn't love him. It wasn't what they were doing, it was the fact they wouldn't love him. Oh, it's tragic. Well, look at this, they found none. Verse 56. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say... I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. So they found two who said the same sentence. And they thought, that's the charge. But unfortunately, since they questioned them, they started disagreeing. They couldn't find any witnesses. And in a normal court of law, the moment that happens, the whole trial is abandoned. What happened here? Well, we're going to see later on. The sixth reason why it was illegal was that there was violence in the courtroom. And that just was not permitted. It's not permitted in ours. It was not permitted in theirs. But Jesus was subjected to it. Jesus had to be subjected (coughs) to the violence at their hands. All right, so these are bogus trials. There's not a, a, a sound thing in any of them. And yet on that basis he was sent to the cross. Let's uh, take a look at two distinct trials, or two parts of two of the trials, two of the six, and see exactly how wicked they turned out to be. The high priest had actually shown what they thought of Jesus. They'd shown very clearly. When Judas Iscariot went to them and said, By the way, I'm a friend of Jesus. I'll lead him to you if you want. How much money will you give me? They did a very clever thing. They said, Oh, yes. We'll give you 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. Now in Exodus in chapter 21, I think it's verse 32, 30 pieces of silver was the amount that was paid for a useless servant who had been gored by an ox. And they were saying, Jesus, he's worth only a maimed servant to us, a useless servant, who does he think he is? Useless. So Judas will give you 30 pieces of silver. What God was seeing behind it was that Jesus was going to be gored by our sins. Gored, the servant, gored by the sins of the whole world. And 30 pieces of silver was the correct price for him. Let's have a look at you. I'm going into Matthew's Gospel and we're going to stay there for a little time. Now I'm coming to the trial before Caiaphas. In Matthew chapter 26... This is not the first trial, this is the second trial that he went to. Yet perhaps one of the most prolonged. And here he is before Caiaphas and beginning verse 57. Now let's go through it. All right, so Matthew 26 beginning verse 57. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. This is in the dead of night, by the way. This was all prearranged, and they're all ready to pounce on Jesus. All, I believe, except two. There were two members, I believe, who were absent in the assembly. And they were two believers, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, and I bet they hadn't been told about it. I'm sure if they had, they'd been there to defend the Lord. They'd have been there and shouting for him. Not a word was said. This was a secret meeting. All right? Held at night. And they're all ready. They deliberately got up early. This was not to be missed. This was a great event. Their adversary, the one that they hated so much because he showed showed how false they were, was now going to be put down once for all. Right. They're all ready. Now, verse 58 deals with the carnal catastrophe of Peter. And we won't uh, deal with that. So on to verse 59. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. They passed the sentence already and it was going to be death. Jesus, you're going to die as soon as we've got you. You're a dead man, Jesus. That's what they were saying. They sought him, they sought false witnesses against him, in order to put him to death. And in Greek, it's frightening, really. It's the, uh, uh, the aorist or aorist tense there, which means they wanted to put him to death, and as quickly as possible, in a moment of time, at that particular point. Next, it's the active voice. They wanted to do it themselves, and they were determined to. Subjunctive mood, they're not sure whether they can that they're going to have a good try. That was their intention. And even from the moment that someone laid hands on Jesus, this is what they wanted to do. And the Lord Jesus knew that's exactly what they wanted to do. You notice this. There was no bitterness in Jesus as he was hauled in front of them. What would you have been doing? You might have said, oh, I'm going to be like Jesus, and I'm not going to open my mouth. But you imagine the thoughts that would have seethed through your head. Jesus not a word. Isaiah says of him, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. When I was in Lincolnshire, a slaughterer up there actually showed me and told me about how the lambs are the most gentle creatures of all to die. The pigs will go for you. They know they're going to die in the slaughterhouse and they'll rush and try and kill you. Every other animal puts up a fight, but a lamb just lies there and lets you kill it. And Jesus, knowing what was in their thoughts, he just went into their presence and he said, you can get on with it. And there wasn't a wicked thought in his head. That would have been sin. That would have been sin. There was love. There was love pouring out of him for these people. Well, it transcends anything that we've experienced in our own lives, doesn't it? To be in that particular place with only love pouring out, no bitterness. That's what it means in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it says it's a shame if you take your brother to law. Isn't it better rather to suffer the wrong? That's what it means. To be like Jesus, he would rather suffer the wrong. And anyway, he knew that unless he died sinless on that cross, there'd be no salvation for you and no salvation for me. For there is salvation in none other but in the name of Jesus. Next one. Verse 60, they sought false witnesses, yes, but found none, and we've seen it. They couldn't find any. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. They couldn't find any that agreed. It must have been really hilarious, actually, to have seen them pushing these through, trying to get two stories that actually agreed on any point. And the last came, at last, came two false witnesses and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And by the way, what's so bad about that? The Jews are well known for boasting. And in the natural, you could have put it down to boasting. Actually, of course, Jesus wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his body. Uh, The Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 19, makes it very clear. And actually, he says there, you destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. You kill me, I'm going to rise from the dead in three days. If he'd been talking about the temple, he would have said, well, I've got power to destroy it, and instantly build it again. It wouldn't take three days for Jesus to build the temple. It would take, well, just a little lift of a little finger on one of his hands. And the whole temple would have assembled instantly. He's saying nothing wrong. Ah, but this is Caiaphas, he's found one sentence from two witnesses that actually agree that Jesus really did say that he had power to destroy the temple and to build it again in three days. Absolutely no sin in that, but he's going to pounce on it. So, here he comes. Right, verse 62. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? Now, that's a very clumsy translation. Could I re-translate uh, that, give it a, again in a different way? Uh, and the high priest arose and said unto him, and now here it is, don't you answer anything about these, what these witnesses have said? Don't you answer anything about what they've said to you? Caiaphas stands in front of Jesus and he says, there's your crime, what have you got to say about it? This is what we are charging you with, how do you plead? jesus wouldn't have anything to do with him he stood completely silent in front of them and caiaphas had to change everything at this point because immediately the witnesses started disagreeing about what he'd actually said and much to caiaphas's embarrassment they then found that their stories didn't add up but jesus just stood there just stood there and he wouldn't plead guilty by the way It was also illegal in the Jewish trial to use evidence from the mouth of the person being tried as evidence against him. So this was false anyway. Right, verse 63. But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee. And the word adjure means to command. I command thee by the living God. Who is the living God, by the way? Jesus is. And there was the living God standing right in front of him, and he says, I put you under oath on the name of the living God. <laughs> Tragic. And Caiaphas, completely blind to everything. And he points to Jesus, said, You're under oath now. You've got to speak the truth. I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ. The son of God. And Jesus had to answer at this point. He was now completely under oath. He had no choice in the matter. Under the law you had to answer if you were put under oath. And so he answers. And what does he say? Jesus said unto him thou hast said. Oh how weak that is in the English. Thou hast said. The Greek is emphatically yes. You've said it. You've said it. Definitely, yes. It's positive in the affirmative. Yes, sir, the Americans would say. Yes, sir. That's right. You've hit it, we might say. I am. Yes, I am, definitely. Mark actually gives that, the translation from the Greek. He actually says, I am. I really am. And that must have taken Caiaphas by surprise. He had to. He had to say it. And Jesus said, you've hit it right on the head. I really am what you say I am. Yes. And notice what he says. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Caiaphas, I'm talking to you, Caiaphas, Jesus says. This is what he says. Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Notice, he doesn't start explaining about his death on the cross and the resurrection. Because religion hates, religion hates and always has hated the death of Jesus. Always. So he says, Caiaphas, be careful what you're doing. Because the day's coming when I'm going to be judged. And you're going to meet, see me seated in a place of authority. And I'm going to come again and you, Caiaphas, are going to be judged. And there's the warning that Jesus gives to Caiaphas. Right, now what happens? The high priest, who is judge, jumps up. He doesn't need any charge now. That's enough. That's enough, from his own mouth he's condemned, which was against the Jewish law. Verse 65, then the high priest rent his clothes. That means he was extremely frustrated and extremely angry. And he started pulling at his clothes, which was a sign that this was enough. He'd heard enough, he couldn't stand any more. He rent his clothes, saying, he hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Have you read that verse without a smile coming on your face before? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, we're a court of law, and as he said that, we don't need any witnesses. Terrible. This is a bogus mockery of a trial that we're seeing. Of course he needed witnesses. It was a case under law, and under law you need witnesses. Definitely. Oh, what need have we of these witnesses? That's convenient, isn't it, as none of the witnesses could agree. Oh, take these witnesses away, we don't need them anymore. That's it. And look what he says. Behold now ye have heard his blasphemy. And I think the heart of Jesus must have just broken at this point. To be accused of blasphemy. Jesus, the Son of God. He who had said to his father, it is my meat and my drink to do your will, is accused of blasphemy. He who in the garden of Gethsemane had swept beads of blood from his forehead and had finally said, my father, your will be done. Not mine. Your will be done. Caiaphas stands up in front of him and says, he's out of blasphemy. Can you imagine it? Blasphemy is a denial of God it's going against God and can you imagine what it did to the heart of the father the father who had said this is my beloved son this is the son I love in whom I am well pleased and Caiaphas a religious man stands up and says of Jesus he's blasphemed he's blasphemed terrible absolutely awful when you think of it and Jesus had to stand there and say nothing at all His heart was aching to do his father's will. And this ungodly religious person standing at the front accusing him of blasphemy. Tragic. Now, verse 66. Caiaphas turns round and he's surrounded by all of his cronies in the Sanhedrin. He says, what do you think? What do you think? And here I want to bring in a bit of background information. Because the whole land was dominated by Caiaphas's father-in-law, a man called Annas. Annas, A-double-N-A-S, And he was a complete gangster. He was actually the equivalent of the mafia. He was uh, the type of gangster that you would get in the 20s and the 30s in America. He was a complete leader of the gangsters. And he ruled Israel and did whatever he wanted to with his gangster hordes. And, he, and Caiaphas, who's his beloved son-in-law, turns around to the, the Sanhedrin and he says to them, what do you think? They didn't have any option. They knew full well if they said to Caiaphas, well, we disagree, that they'd go home and their house would be burnt to the ground. Their wife would have been murdered. Their children would have been kidnapped. Because Annas and Caiaphas were as thick as thieves, literally. They were. And it was Annas who actually uh, ran the whole of the gangster operations in the deserts at the time of Jesus. And he turns around and says, what do you think, everyone? Well, if our two beloved brethren had been there, they would have stood up and they would have said, you're wrong. And we won't put up with this, not for one moment. But the rest of them were completely and absolutely intimidated by both Caiaphas and Annas. And notice what they say, they answered and said, he is guilty of death. In the night, on the same day, without any witnesses, they turn around and they say, he's guilty, and his sentence is death, and we all agree. And the next thing. Under the law, by the way, under Leviticus 24, I think verse 5, they were right. If he had committed blasphemy, death was his sentence, and it should have been carried out. But there was no evidence, there was no proof of blasphemy. There were no witnesses to it. If one man says something, it's not established. That's what the law says. And they said, just because Jesus said it, that's our evidence, which was not so. Verse 67. And here we come to the violence in the the courtroom. And this is our beloved Jesus. Then did they spit in his face. And it means that they queued up to spit in his face, one after the other. They spat in the face of Jesus. And buffeted him. The word buffeted is not buffeted. We think of buffeted as bumping into someone. It's punched with a closed fist. The whole of the Sanhedrin walked past and they punched him in the face. And around the body with their fist. They were beginning to pass the sentence already. I think they were incited by Satan to do this. Because Satan would have loved to see Jesus dead before the cross. He'd have loved to see it. And they went and punched him in the face. Have you ever seen these pictures of Jesus hanging on the cross? And they show him lily white with an occasional cut. Have you ever seen these pictures? That's not it at all. Isaiah chapter 52 says that his face was so marred more than any man that people were astonished when they looked at him. Isaiah 53 says that the crowds had to turn away. Uh, Keep your finger in the place. Let's have a look at that. Isaiah 52 and verse 14. Isaiah 52 and verse 14. As many were astonished, it says. That's the word astonished at thee his visage his face was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men and when jesus walked on his way to the cross he didn't look human that's what it means his face had been punched and beaten in so that when people looked at him they were absolutely astonished they had never seen any prisoner who'd been tortured and beaten up in this way And it was the religious leaders who were the first to do it. The soldiers continued doing it. No wonder Jesus couldn't carry his cross. He'd been beaten within an inch of his life. And that's why I frankly cannot look seriously at any picture of Jesus hanging on the cross to see him lily white and this frail body hanging there when I know that the Bible definitely declares that he was punched until his face was puffed up so that it didn't look human anymore and that's our Jesus that I'm talking about next and others smote him with the palms of their hands they went up and slapped him saying prophesy unto us thou Christ who is he that smote thee his eyes were so puffed up he couldn't see out of them and they go up and they slap him around the face and say come on you're supposed to be a prophet what's my name Who's hit you?" And not a word or a cry or a scream came out of the mouth of Jesus. He suffered completely in silence. How could a man take such torture? How could anyone stand there and have uh, a totally illegal trial, then beaten up, then mocked in that fashion? How could he have stood it? And the answer is, He had you in mind, he had you in mind and he knew that unless he went to that cross and died there'd be no salvation for you and it was his love for you that caused him to stand there and take all of the punishment. That's how much he loved you. This bogus judgment on Jesus was taken because he was occupied with you and he knew that if he died on that cross. Many would accept him and become his beloved children. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Hallelujah. Next week we're going to see something that made him scream. None of this physical torture had made made him scream. None of the physical pains had made him scream. Next week we're going to see the day when he screamed out from the cross. When something worse than any physical pain was put upon him. Your sins made him scream out from the cross. Right, there's the first, a bit of one of the trials. And totally and absolutely illegal affair. But let's stand in awe because God is not mocked. And Jesus did rise from the dead. Hallelujah. He did rise from the dead. Let's uh, see another of the trials. I think we're saying, Matthew, although uh, it's reported in two of the others... Would you turn to me now to a later trial in Matthew 27 and beginning at verse 15. Now there's some background that we've got to know. And here he is arriving before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Now Pontius Pilate lived in what was called the Praetorium. Here it is, spell it. P-R-A-E-T-O-R-I-U-M, (coughs) Praetorium. It was quite a large building, had several floors above, uh, you know, on it, so that it wasn't just a single storey. It was probably two or three, perhaps four storeys tall. And uh, about halfway up, it had a balcony, which overlooked a beautiful square outside the proconsul's house there. Down below in the basement were the barracks of the soldiers, so that if there was an insurrection, the first place that would actually be protected would be the praetorium, all right, where the governor lived. So the governor was safe, no matter what happened. He had this balcony uh, set above this courtyard because on certain days the Jews couldn't enter his house. If there was a feast day on, as the Gospel of John tells us, then they were unclean if they entered a the Gentiles' house. So any business that he had to do on that day, he used to walk out onto the balcony and they would all gather down below him and he could uh, direct the business from this particular balcony. It was quite a good idea. And when this trial occurs, he's on the balcony. And Jesus is on the balcony as well. And all the rest are down below, milling about. And notice what it says, verse 15. Now, at that feast, this is the Passover, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. At this feast, the feast of the Passover, as a special sign that they loved the Jews the Romans actually used to release a prisoner. Of course, they didn't love the Jews at all. But to sort of pacify them so that they wouldn't be too much trouble, they used to release a prisoner. It was actually, to them, a sign of the Exodus, when the children of Israel were released from the land of bondage. And so every Passover, which was, of course, the feast of the Exodus, they used to say, well, you can have a prisoner, he can go free. And so, at the time that we are talking about, which is now early morning... Jesus and Pilate are on the balcony, and the whole square is filled with people. And there were probably Gentiles there, and there were probably Jews there. And they come to see two things. they come first of all to see Jesus, and they'd also come to see who Pontius Pilate would release to them, as a special gift on the Passover at this time. Now, that's what verse 15 says. It was his rule, it was his custom <coughs> to release someone. And notice what it says, verse 16. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Well, it makes him sound good, doesn't it? A notable prisoner. The word is notorious prisoner, which is slightly different. They had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. If we want to find out about Barabbas, we've got to go to another gospel. Keep your finger in the place and turn to Mark 15... Mark chapter fifteen, which is describing the same thing, incidentally. <clears throat> and verse seven. All right, Mark fifteen seven. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. Now, this definitely was an anarchist. This was a man who had committed insurrection. He was a known murderer. And whether his name was really Barabbas, we don't know, because any man who wanted to lead an attack a revolt against the Romans called himself Barabbas, which meant son of the father, the Messiah. They all called themselves the Messiah. So here was Barabbas, a real gangster, would have got on very well with Annas. I don't know how Annas could have Bear to have him locked up, actually. And uh, he is, is locked away in the prison with all of his cronies. Right, now there's the introduction. Verse 17. Therefore, when they were gathered together, this is Matthew 27 again, verse 17. Pilate said unto them, and he shouts out to the crowd now, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called the Christ? You people in the crowd, I'm going to leave the choice up to you. Do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? Barabbas is a known murderer, a known insurrectionist, a person that you wouldn't choose to have as a next-door neighbour. You've got the choice, he says. Clever. This is clever. And notice why he said it. Verse 18. For he knew that for envy they, the high priest, had delivered Jesus. For envy... He knew it was unjust. He knew they had no real cause. It was only to get him out of the way. So he says, right, you choose. You people in the crowd, you choose. Who's it going to be, Barabbas? Jesus. Verse 19. Now we get to a bit of his family history. When he was sit down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with this just man. The word just is righteous. Perfect. This just man. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Now he gives the crowd the choice and then he sits down to let them decide. And his wife comes up, distraught, she hasn't been able to sleep. She says, I've had terrible dreams about this Jesus. He's a just man, he's a righteous one, don't have anything to do with it. I think she was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We don't know whether Pilate was became a saved man. He died terribly, actually. Later on, this his history proves. But I reckon his wife must be, have been very close to salvation at this point. Very close indeed. Well, that's just a bit of background history. Now he comes. Now notice verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The chief opponents were the religious people of the land. The people who were supposed to represent god were the ones who actually swung the crowd in favor of barabbas they would rather have a murderer and insurrectionist than to have the perfect sinless son of man it is so evil and the crowd there they might have picked they might have picked jesus but these religious people going oh pick barabbas pick barabbas they were wandering through the and pick barabbas we'll make sure you're all right don't worry pick barabbas barabbas okay barabbas and they were spreading it all the way around. And there's one thing about crowds, they're fickle. The crowds, a few days earlier, had been throwing palm leaves down, had been saying to Jesus, Hosanna! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. What, what are they going to cry now? Well, it's not going to be Hosanna. Sabres, not going to be that. It's going to be entirely different. So, the chief priests and the elders persuade the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. 21. The governor answered and said unto them, Whither of the twain will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. And the crowd started shouting, Barabbas, 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 Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Pilate said unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And notice, they all say unto him, Let him be crucified. We want him crucified. And shouting out, crucify, crucify, crucify. And the governor said, why? This is the only defense Jesus had. Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out the more, saying, let him be crucified. And the religious people had now stirred them up into a frenzy. We've got to have Jesus crucified. Crucify him. They were shouting it out, and it was getting louder and louder and louder. No explanation was given to Pilate. Just crucify him. That's all we're interested in. Crucify him. <clears throat> Verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, a riot. Now, he mustn't have a riot on his hands, or if Caesar will want to know why. So, immediately, he's stuck now. He hates the Jews, but he can't go too far. And he sees now a riot is beginning to form. The people are beginning to seethe. They're almost beginning to attack the praetorium. (coughs) But rather a tumult was made. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just, this righteous person. See ye to it. And in the ancient world, when you washed your hands publicly, you were saying, I disagree with all of you, but I'm having nothing more to do with it. Carry on as you want to wash your hands of someone you see never it was and Pilate, instead of being strong and governor as indeed he was he said okay do as you please but don't blame me for it and their answer and perhaps one of the most terrifying verses uh in the bible then answered all the people and said his blood be on us and on our children And standing in front of the praetorium and this square, the place crowded out, these people shout, we take full responsibility, let his blood be on us and on our children. And history shows us what happened, because in AD 62, just 29 years later, on that very spot, the very square, a later proconsul than Pontius Pilate crucified 3,600 Jewish nobles on the very spot that these men shouted we take full responsibility pay us back if you want God and 3600 crosses were established in the square and when you think of it it is probably some of these people and some of their children who were actually crucified at that time it's only 29 years later that this occurred eight years after that in AD 70 The whole square was awash with blood and with dead bodies as the Roman armies under Titus swept into the city and destroyed every Jew in sight. Well over a million Jews suffered and died and this square was filled with blood of people who had at this time accepted the responsibility for the death of Jesus. Now I think that's awesome, that's awesome. And remember what the Bible says, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. It is not for us to judge on these issues, but it shows the extreme awesomeness. Actually, that is why in Luke, if we could turn to it, (coughs) Luke 23, Jesus said these words on the way to the cross. Luke 23. And I think uh, verse 27 we'll begin at. And there followed him a great company of people and of women which also bewailed and lamented him. This was their custom whenever something bad was happened they were professionals at this. You actually hired, rent a crowd, and they used to come along and weep and weep and weep. You remember Mary and Martha had it for Lazarus, and all these people <coughs> hang around, they pay them a bit of money, and they'd go along and bewail, and they'd also see how they loved them. And it saved you, then, if you didn't love them terribly much, uh, actually weeping anything, you see. And instead of having a grand funeral with a marvelous tombstone, you just had a huge crowd of people all sobbing their hearts out, you see, to show how much you loved them. And here they are, following Jesus. Verse 28 But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. Don't weep for me. Why did, should he say that? He said, he said that because he knew in three days' time he was going to be up from the grave. Don't waste your tears on me. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. You should be thankful. You should be happy because I'm going to win your salvation. Don't weep for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children for behold the days are coming in in the which they shall say blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck and they're the words of Jesus he knew what was going to come upon the Jewish nation he knew that 29 years later 3,600 noblemen would be crucified where he was accused he knew that uh... just thirty five years or oh, thirty seven years after he said these words that millions of jews would lay dead at the hands of the roman army and he knew then for two thousand years or thereabouts the jews would be scattered and persecuted right round the world he also knew by the way that blessed is the nation that blesses israel praise god he also knew that but he knew that their judgment was self-induced. They brought it on themselves. We as Christians have a right to bless Israel always. We must pray for Israel, always. Uh, It's an amazing story, the rise and fall of nations in connection with anti-Semitism. but uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse one to three, deals clearly with it. And there God definitely warns that anyone who lays a hand on Abraham's children, they're gonna be destroyed. But anyone who blesses them is going to be extremely blessed. Hallelujah. Well, I know which course I want Britain to take. Hallelujah. And any other country as well. There is the judgment of Jesus. And by the way, we haven't reached the cross yet. We haven't reached the cross. And Satan was there battling as well. Satan wanted Jesus dead before he reached the cross. Because if Satan could stop Jesus getting to the cross, he's broken the word of God. And as you know, immediately he left, immediately he left uh, Pontius Pilate's place. He was taken and scourged, that means whipped with a whip, with metal bits on the end, within an inch of his life. And we haven't reached the cross. These are, these are all of the sufferings before, and he didn't deserve one of them. It was all illegal. The judgment of Jesus from the first five that we've considered is total, a total mockery of the truth. But he loved us so much. How wonderful. How much time, Mike, have we got? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. May we all seek to serve the Lord in truth and fullness and selflessly, even as Jesus laid down his life for us. Amen.